0: The Anesthesia Podcast. Uh, so welcome back, everyone. Uh, we're here with session two. Uh, we've got two brand new chairs. We've got six authors. Uh, and today and in this session, we're going to be talking about innovations in regional anesthesia. Um, in this session, we have uh, Laura Duggan and Ed Mariano, who are two editors of the journal. Ed's a, a regionalist, and Laura is um, quite um, happily uh, a kind of anaesthetist, although um, maybe we're going to persuade her to become a regionalist after, after this session. Um, but there's an important point there, or maybe we'll get onto that as well, that regional anaesthesia really should be for everyone. They're joined by uh, Lloyd Turbett, uh, Barbara Vassit, uh, Graham McLeod. Uh, Jeff Gadsden, uh Philippe Lurk, and Christian Skreber as well. Uh, if you've got any questions, again, we didn't have any questions from the first session. Uh, if any come up, uh, please do let us know. Uh, we'll be delighted to get some questions to our chairs and get them to the authors. Uh, but without further ado, I'll hand over to Ed, who's got our first question. It's fantastic. So the
1: first session went great. Um, look forward to a lot of conversation here um, on this fantastic special issue of the journal. Um, hopefully many of you have been following along on Twitter. There have been a lot of tweets today as the issue has been released. This is all free open access. So I direct everyone back to the Anesthesia Journal website so that way you can take a look at the incredible content. So since we don't have that much time and each of our uh, presenters has been um, instructed very strictly in terms of our time limit, I'm going to go ahead and start with uh, Dr. Versick. Um, I thought this paper was fantastic. This is the update of Uh, blocks of the chest wall, and just the illustrations are amazing. So I really hope that everyone takes a look at that article. Um, But my question is kind of a general one, so I'm interested in your perspective. Um, Seeing as how we have so many of these new ultrasound-guided fascial plane blocks with chest wall indications um, in the current context of having gold standards like thoracic epidural analgesia and paravertebral block, uh, what do you see as the priorities for uh, anesthetists moving into the future? in terms of learning about these particular blocks applying them in, and applying them into their practice? Yes,
2: yeah, so it's a good question. And I think before I answer it, we need to know where we stand today. So if we look at efficacy of chest wall blocks, we can say that they are effective and attractive alternatives to the current erection techniques due to the safety profile, their simplicity of execution, and their um, effectiveness. Now, if we look to the future, I think that we um, should focus on three elements. And the first one is to have optimal dosage regimens. Because, as we all know, chest wall blocks, as all facial plane blocks, require a large volume of local anesthetic. And this um, little research has been done on what is the optimal volume for each technique. And we use this volume and we often obtain it by diluting our local anesthetic. Now, local anesthetic does need to have an effective concentration when reaching the nerve to be able to, require, to um, provide analgesia. And so little study has been done to um, define this concentration for each technique. Now, while we are optimizing this volume and this concentration, I think we should also look at the last guidelines and um, to fine tune them for these new, new facial plane uh, techniques. Now another one regarding efficacy is a bit um, the, uh, the effect of additives and of continuous catheter techniques because I think that we can further optimize the intensity and of the duration of blocks that we can achieve um, this way. And the third point I think is um, that we should uh, look at the evaluation of the different techniques against each other and not only by looking at opioid consumption and pain scores, but also look at patient-centered outcomes like quality of recovery. Now there's the efficacy for the future. There's the utility for the future. So um, I think utility-wise, what we have today is we have specific blocks for specific kinds of surgery. We have a PEGS block for breast cancer surgery or an erector spin-plane block for um, FATS. And it's almost always in adult patients. So I think going into the future might be interesting to see what we can do for a pediatric population as these blocks can be performed under general anesthesia. And there's also a large benefit potentially for cardiac surgery as the coagulation um, the coagulation uh, 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 limits are less for uh, facial plane blocks than they are for neurological techniques. And finally, I also think that there's uh, a great benefit outside of the operating room. I think we can uh, use them in the uh, emergency room, in the pre-hospital setting for trauma, and that we can also use them in um, uh, uh, the chronic pain setting, for example, for uh, chronic post mastectomy pain. So I think there's a lot of excitement going on for the future.
1: That's great. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective.
3: So our our second question uh, goes to you, uh, Dr. Jeff Gadson. Um, I as a as a non-regionalist, um, you know, I trained in the day of, of nerve stimulation, um, and then suddenly ultrasound was was everywhere. Um, and so I, I I was really I really liked your article. And in fact, as a non-regionalist, I would say that the entire journal is required reading for us non-regionalists because it's such an excellent review of so many subjects. It, it was very exciting for me to, to read it. Um, but especially yours, uh, where you're, where you've bridged that between ultrasound and, and nerve stimulation. And so when you talk about dual, the dual guidance approach, uh, when referring to the conflict between the early ultrasound adopters and the traditional stimulus, like, can you expand on that, that, that concept of dual guidance?
4: Sure. Thanks. Thanks, Laura. Um, yeah. I also trained when ultrasound wasn't a thing and then it, and it became a thing. And so I have, I have a leg in both camps and I, I, I saw, I witnessed the early adopters um, seeing the benefit of ultrasound and then dropping nerve stimulation, like a bad habit. And they just had nothing to do with it. And, and that was bolstered by studies that showed that it was pretty insensitive, actually. You could be inside a nerve and not get a twitch. And so we saw this move away from it. It became this sort of vociferous debate at meetings. Do you use ultrasound or do you use nerve simulation? And it kind of set up this false dichotomy, like either or. Um, and uh, But I'd argue that, that we don't use it that way anymore. We don't use nerve stimulation to find nerves and get close to nerves. We use, I use it to, to stay away from nerves because while it's insensitive, it's actually very specific. So if you turn your current down to say 0.2 milliamps and you're getting a twitch, everything we know about the science of nerve stimulation and nerves shows that your tip is contacting or is inside the, the nerve. So so we'll set the current to say 0.5 or 0.6 use all set it and just set it aside and then get our ultrasound sort of get close to the nerve uh, or to the fascial plane or wherever and don't expect to get a twitch when we do get a twitch that's an indication that maybe we're too close and of course we're not you know not always seeing the tip of our needle all the time and uh and so so this is this is how we're using it these days and so that I, the concept of dual guidance of course no one's going to not use ultrasound. Ultrasound was a, a win from the very first time everyone entered, used it for for um, for visualizing nerves. But the addition of nerve stimulation is can only bring you more information. And so, you know, as <laughs> I, I like to use the analogy with our trainees. If someone offered you the choice when driving a car between seatbelt or airbags, that's ridiculous, right? Why wouldn't you use both? And so this is how I sort of see ultrasound and nerve stimulation. They both bring different things to the table in terms of safety and preventing neurologic injury. And uh, and and since nerve stimulation is cheap and effective and just gives you more information without any real downside, um, I'm a big advocate for its use in that setting with dual
1: guidance
3: brilliant, brilliant answer. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. That uh, that analogy, the the seat belt and the airbags is in his article. So I I definitely recommend that people check out the article. Um, My my next question is for Dr. Schreiber. Um, Thank you so much for joining us and for contributing to the special issue. Um, I've uh, been definitely an admirer. I've heard you speak before. Um, And I think that your article, I think, did um, a great job really framing um, the really the, the pathophysiology and also available interventions for uh, the prevention of uh, persistent post-surgical pain, which I think is really something that uh, we've all started to think much more about um, and the potential role for uh, not just regional analgesia, but also other modalities. And I think I really liked your theme about uh, this being part of a multimodal approach, similar to the way that we approach acute pain as a multimodal approach. Um, how do you How do you envision... The role of regional analgesia um, in the present state um, as a multi in the multimodal approach to preventing uh, persistent post surgical pain, and where do you think that regional analgesia can have improvements um, in in its role in contributing to a multimodal approach to prevention?
5: Well, thank you so much, and thanks for having me on this. Um, So, I'll just say you know, the short answer is that I think. It still will have a very central role <laughs> um, because, um, because of the way the nociceptive pathway is set up, um, we know that the injury starts in the tissue with the surgery. And really the first connection point is with those peripheral nociceptors, and then they carry it on to the dorsal horn. There's activation of microglial astrocytes. It's passed onto the thalamus and up to the cortex. and there's lots of points of modulation after that and activation beyond that. But if you can block that first set of activations during this sort of crucial window of when central sensitization starts, that's that's got to be the biggest gun, so to speak, um, to, to block that event. Um, the one thing that I would say going forward that we could improve on, and I, I have really tried to focus on this in my own research, is not so much which is the best block for which type of case, but who is the person that needs this block the most? Especially when it comes to chronic pain, I think we can all agree that acute pain is almost always helped, and you can almost always reduce opioids for everyone with a peripheral block, but some of the studies that look at the prevention of chronic pain have been less than Satisfactory in terms of being definitive? Does this definitely block it? And I think part of the reason for that is that most people don't develop chronic pain. And so almost every study is underpowered for looking at that outcome. So if we want to really get at who needs this the most to prevent chronic pain, we have to look at the person and say, what types of risk factors do they have for chronic pain? There's biological, psychological, maybe social factors that all contribute to that risk. And I think there's a number of studies now that are coming out that suggest that people who have a high risk, if you just look at them and regional versus no regional, it's a lot more definitive um, sort of at preventing that. So and I honestly think if we took that by a psychosocial lens and applied it to the acute period as well, we would know who needs a block the most as well. Um, So I guess that's moving a little bit away from the protocolized medicine to personalized medicine and and making regional, like, the centerpiece of a personalized medicine. If we know someone's very high risk, we make sure that they get a block, even if we think their procedure isn't a huge procedure, and maybe we wouldn't normally always give a block for it. Um, So.
1: Thank you. That's a nice segue, because I think that um, uh, hopefully soon we'll be able to fill in some of the details so we know exactly how to account for so much of the variance and who goes on to develop chronic pain after surgery. Um, but I think having that, uh, the skill set, the, the, these tools available uh, for all the patients, for especially those who need it, I think is going to be key. So I'll hand it back over to Laura to ask uh, a very relevant question to our next author.
3: These two, these two go hand in glove. Truly, uh, these two questions. Um, So, Lloyd, it's first of all so nice to meet you after following one another on Twitter for this long. I I think. At least a couple of years. Um, so um, I, I read your article, and, and like all of them, I mean, this just so such high yield with all these articles. But w- I, I'd like to hear your your personal opinion about what constitutes an overall success of regional anesthesia um, uh, in terms of a program, and and how we should be measuring it.
6: Yeah. So first of all, I just like to. Say that- um, and if you, if you hear any pauses or anything like that, it's not your internet. It's, it's me tripping over my words and uh, stammering. Um, but um, so less and regional um, is not really score by one or two or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really multifaceted. Mm-hmm. I mean, we developed these four pillars of success. And they are patient outcomes, population outcomes, health care outcomes, and I mean, education outcomes. And the patient outcomes are self-explanatory. And It's basically um, proms and uh, patient satisfaction um, and quality of recovery. Um, and then uh, population outcomes are um, also um, like the... And environmental impact, um, the uh, reduction in aerosol generation, and also a reduction in post op opioid prescribing. But the ones we also met um, um, are the last ones. And if we look at the healthcare outcomes, uh, the question is how will regional anesthesia add b- value um, and how? will it impact on resource utilisation? And this is a question that is rarely answered um, in our studies. And if we look at also how we can integrate uh, pathways um, and and try and use it uh, to move on uh, necessary processes. Um, But the other issue is that Regional anesthesia is not a success, if only a handful of us are actually able to do it. And so it is really important that we try and increase access. Um, And as you're aware, uh, we have raised the concept of a few blocks for the many, and that is through the plan A blocks. And that's um, a small number of blocks, which are very uh, versatile um, and that that anyone can learn. And obviously everyone will have their own views on this. And uh, we we raised as well about um, looking at more objective ways, of trying to measure value of individual nerve blocks. And Ed will um, know that he um, published a scoring system, which is another way that uh, we evaluate objectively uh, nerve blocks. But the last issue is that at the core of regional anaesthesia success, um, is education. And we need to improve how we teach and assess uh, skills in regional anaesthesia. And we also need to improve this this simulation this, this um, so that we can learn regional anaesthesia outside um, of the operating room.
3: So when you say outside the operating room, could, could you just expand very briefly on that?
6: Yes, because at the minute, um, a lot of learning of regional um, is in these little sh- small snippets of interoperative time. And, and there's always a lot of pressure um, um, from, from a variety of sources. And um, a l- lot of the learning is, is muscle memory. Um, and Bandai... Coordination and th- these are uh, skills that you can learn, um, you know, and in a simulation environment, um, so that you can then utilize these skills interoperatively and build on them, um, your own real patients.
3: Excellent, excellent. Th- thank you so much, Lloyd, for your considered. Um, answer it. It sounds like we still have some work to do in terms of the measurements of, of outcomes.
1: I also had the good pleasure of uh, following Lloyd for a while before we had a chance to meet in person live. So it it, do, it does actually happen. So um, and uh, and yeah, as you can tell, he's a a big thinker, and I think that's what made it so fun to write the article about the future of regional anesthesia training editorial that um, led to the discussion of Plan A blocks. So um, go ahead and take make sure you take a look at his article. He has some great um, infographics. Uh, he has the four pillars, which I thought was the which is the one that I chose to share on Twitter, which is just fantastic. So my question is for uh, Dr. Lurk. So we're going to be, um, we're going to talk specifically about one patient population, a patient population um, that suffers a uh, of- from diabetes, and we know diabetes is a systemic illness and has um, issues related to microvascular disease and organ dysfunction, uh, peripheral neuropathy. And so, uh, so what is your snippet of advice for the for the anesthetist who has to perform a peripheral nerve blockade? How do you adjust your regional anesthesia practice for this patient population, which um, is is a very knowingly very broad and highly variable,
7: and very common? Thank you, doctor. Thank you, doctor Mariana. Thank you everyone for both invitation and the kind introduction. So I wrote this article together with Nicholas Levy from Cambridge and we tried to summarize our current understanding of what regional anesthesia in diabetic patients um, looks like. We started by summarizing why regional anesthesia may be a good option in these patients. And the, the reasons here for can be summarized on one group is just to avoid general anesthesia And the other ones are actually active options where regional anesthesia has an active benefit. Example for the first group of of causes is, for example, that patients with diabetes over time develop autonomic neuropathy, um, gastric paresis, all sorts of things that make general anesthesia more complicated, potentially more dangerous even. And on the other side, we know that that regional anesthesia has benefits that are sometimes on a broad level, such as um, reduction in opiate, consumption if correctly timed, um, the reduction in time to discharge if correctly timed, a reduction in stress response, et cetera, et cetera. And um, then there are some potential benefits that relate directly to diabetics and their complications. One of the most pronounced ones is, for example, people undergoing AV fistula repair, the prototypical complication of diabetes being end-stage renal disease. And for people who need AV fistula repair, we know that patients do better and the graft does better if the surgery is performed under regional anesthesia. So there is a quite a big um, body of evidence that suggests that regional anesthesia is is good. But now we also know that there are some peculiarities in performing regional anesthesia for these patients, and they typically become apparent as the plain diabetes progresses to diabetes with end organ damage, and in this sense, the diabetic peripheral neuropathy. Um, And the more severe neuropathy becomes, the more severe the changes relevant for us for regional anesthesia become. So the first thing that we have to um, understand when we look at diabetes and regional anesthesia is that these nerve blocks typically, if someone is neuropathic, really last much longer than in usual patients. And there are two reasons for it, which we know since a few years. The first one is that local anesthetic um, has a more profound effect on diabetic neuropathic nerves. So they are more sensitive on both a molecular level, the sodium channels, and on the nerve level. And the second thing is that nerve blood flow is decreased in diabetic neuropathic nerves. So the local anesthetic that has the higher potency at the channel also lingers around more often. And this combines leads to the um, clinical observation that, for example, if you have a lidocaine block in a patient with diabetic neuropathy, it will last as long as a block with lidocaine plus epi in a normal patient. Those who use double guidance, as Dr. Gadsden do, may find that in diabetic neuropathic patients, you may need to get a pretty high stimulation current in the patient to to get a motor response. And that is um, to do with structural um, changes in the nerve that affect the rheobase, which is the key component in determining the motor response to nerve stimulation. Unfortunately, we know that the With all the the pros of regional anesthesia and diabetics, if we use catheters, there is a higher likelihood of infection. So if we use catheters, continuous methods in regional anesthesia in diabetic patients, we should really religiously check on the indication and on the injection side, on the um, catheter side very closely and make sure that we don't miss catheter infection. And the most controversial topic in all of this is whether local anesthetics are more toxic in um, diabetic neuropathic patients. And to this date, there is no evidence to suggest, to really uh, prove that if you use usual doses of local anesthetics, and by usual, I mean, for example, lidocaine 2%, that that would have any negative impact in terms of toxicity. Um, It doesn't exclude it, but at least until now, we have not been able to demonstrate this. There is other evidence, experimental evidence from preclinical models that says that if you use higher concentrations, and now we are talking lidocaine 4%, that in those concentrations you may see higher neurotoxicity. But all we know, usual concentrations should be just fine. What we also know from preclinical evidence, and which may be a little hint, is that the addition of high doses of vasoconstrictors on diabetic nerves may also be something that could potentially increase toxicity. So based on the available experimental evidence, it's probably safe to do your usual regional anesthetic on a diabetic neuropathic nerve but it's probably prudent to avoid vasoconstrictors and avoid prolonged dense blockade. So to summarize, what changes when you perform regional anesthesia and diabetic neuropathic patients? The nerve stimulation becomes more difficult. Regional anesthesia catheter-associated infection is more likely, and it is likely prudent to avoid prolonged dense blockade and additional vasoconstrictors. Nevertheless, these patients are often ideally suited for regional anesthesia and I encourage you to practice which anesthesia on them as often as possible. We hope you enjoyed the full version of this article, and in the meantime, best regards to Nicholas and myself, and a good new year.
1: All right, so I have a quick uh, yes or no follow-up question. Uh, There's been a lot of discussion about the use of dexamethasone, including intravenous dexamethasone for prolongation of block. Do you, yes or no, add dexamethasone to your local anesthetics, especially in this population?
7: Um, so for, we do add dexamethasin to blocks, but not in diabetics. And But the reason is more that you really don't need adjuvants in these patients. You also wouldn't need epi. I'm sorry, you said yes or no, so I'm explaining. So for normal patients, we, we do it even though the recent evidence suggests that the systemic effect may be more may be more important. So we are maybe behind the times in that a little bit and we should move more to systemic administration. The good news about vasoconstrictors or other adjuvants for diabetic neuropathic patients, where you would really have the danger of possibly causing more injury, is that for those patients, you don't really need it. Your local anesthetic, even without adjuvants will really be very long acting. Thank
1: you. Thank you.
3: Um, uh, so I, I have the pleasure of uh, asking uh, Dr. Graham McLeod our, our last question uh, of this session. And um, I, I have to tell you, again, putting on my hat as a non-regionalist, um, you know, the, the, the whole issue of tip tracking is, is big if, if non-regionalists want to pick up a needle and do regional anesthesia. So I found your articles, uh, both of them, to be fascinating um because if you can't track the the tip then you probably shouldn't be picking up the needle and and so you know it 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 uh i i I will get on to my question. So anyway, I I found this very exciting, uh, your work that you're doing. Do you think that we are on the brink right now of a technological revolution in in tip tracking technology that even I can pick up a needle and track it? Um, And do you think that this will uh, ultimately improve patient safety and change um, the applicability of regional anesthesia um, practice uh, uh, in general?
8: Thanks, Laura. Um, we're actually at the onset of the fourth industrial revolution, which is the combination of biology, engineering and mathematics. And I think the next 10 years are going to be seismic in what we're actually doing. I work in bioengineering and psychology at another university called Harriet watt near Edinburgh, as well as in Dundee. And I actually see for myself what these engineers are actually doing, and it is extraordinary what they are doing, particularly in surgery. Uh, And I think, and actually in anesthesia, we've fallen behind the curve. And in fact, we're relatively late at the game in actually adopting new technology. Um, I think it's absolutely, absolutely we will adopt some form of needle tracking technology. Um, I've um, hinted at about three or four different types in the article, but what we're also going to need to do is actually identify the nerve as well. The different types of needle uh, te- technologies are actually surrogate markers and probably replace the nerve stimulator, which is really not very sensitive. It's about 30%. But of course, human beings are only about 30%. And of course, when, when old fashioned, I was actually trained in old fashioned paresthesia, never mind nerve stimulation. And the sensitivity of that was 30%. But what we should be doing is actually trying to behave like cardiologists. We should be, act- we should be expecting to get this right every single time. And then we should, the, the discussion should not be on, can we get the nerve and can we do the block? The discussion should be, what are the outcomes after we do the block on particular patients, as chronic nerve pain specialist was actually saying there, where we've actually dedicated regional anesthesia to specific people at increased risk of chronic pain, or those with physical informity who would be better off and show better post-op outcomes. Um, So what I've done is illustrated three different types of uh, needle tracker, I think, which are going to to come on the market. The first is um, the the one from B. Braun Phillips, which has just recently been introduced introduced in Europe and the US, which is a a needle tracker whereby the um, ultrasound um, waves... um, impinge on a piezo crystal at the tip of near the tip of the of the needle. And they by algorithms they create a a color circle around the tip. And the more you're in line the needle is actually in line, the needle tip is in line with the transducer, the smaller the circle and it turns green. If it goes off beam, then in fact the circle uh, enlarges becomes two circles becomes red and blue and tells you that you're outside the beam. So in fact, the movement, the size of the circle and the change in color actually redirects you to the center of the beam. And the important thing about this technology is instead of actually looking for the needle itself, what we're now, what it allows us to do is look for the tip first, rather than the shaft, because mm-hmm. the tip's actually the important thing. You can forget the shaft. So this tells us where the, the needle tip is not just in-plane, but also out-of-plane. And this is going to revolutionise the way we do things. Because when I was taught, we never had ultrasound. We went straight for the nerve out-of-plane. So it may well show a reinvigoration, a reinvention of out-of-plane, say, interscaling block, just, just for example. The other technologies are actually, an old-fashioned technology 100 years old. It's using fabric, plero uh, light sensors, whereby we uh, get light beams uh, bouncing off uh, bouncing uh, off of of glass, but these are now so small, you can't actually see them, but you can fit them inside needles. We're actually building one ourselves at Harriet Watt and they they are much, much better at detecting pressure. In fact, they can detect static pressure in tissues. You don't actually need a bag of fluid to flush through to generate a fluid pressure. These actually generate pressure at the spot and give an instant readout as well. So I think what we're going to see is instant readouts of pressure as we actually go into tissue so we can see exactly where we are, confirm exactly where we are. The other thing is is something called bioimpedance and uh, uh, electrical bioimpedance is something which uh, is very sensitive at detecting different tissues. uh, It's based on the AC principle of uh, the the more the frequency um, uh, increases, then uh, the more the um, by impedance actually reduces. So there's some very nice algorithms which have been invented in Norway, which are 97% sensitive for detection of whether you're at the nerve. But the problem with all of these is that they're actually surrogate markers. They're still surrogates. And surrogates always have a failure rate. And so what we actually have built already is actually a uh, ultrasound at the tip of a, an epidural introducer, which has got eight elements at the end of it. And if it wasn't for COVID, we'd have actually Tested it on our teal cadavers, which are a very nice kind of uh, simulator. Which they're soaked in tanks for six months. They've got the same elasticity as humans, um, same responses, the same dispersion of fluid. You can ventilate them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we we've, So we're we we're, we've, we're about to test that once COVID finishes, and the engineers have actually built, would you believe, an, an epidural introducer with 48 ultrasound elements at the tip. So that's already happened. Uh, and uh, uh, it's just a matter of time before we actually test it. And I think the future is very, very close here. Uh, it might need another five years of um, of um, experimentation on the simulator and, and refining the engineering, um, but uh, the actual proof of principle is actually, is actually being built and designed.
0: Thank you very much, everyone. Um, I had some feedback uh, from the journal editors who said that, you know, both this and the previous session could have gone on all night. Uh, we've had a Everyone's had a great time watching uh, and um, um, people will continue to watch. And I think we've got a real CPD crisis here at the moment in the UK that a lot of um, CPD has been cancelled due to the coronavirus crisis. And uh, what I'd say is is I'd encourage uh, people who are watching this to encourage their colleagues and friends to watch the videos and, um, take it from some of the authors um, you know who are here tonight uh, to present their papers and talk about some of the really fascinating topics they're in uh, and and go away and have a look at the papers as well and enjoy them and log it and count it as cpd i think because this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion uh, in both sessions uh, so thank you very much very much everyone uh, i've i've really enjoyed listening along all night and uh uh I look forward to tweeting your papers uh, as the month goes on, uh, sharing infographics uh, and getting the conversation started over on Twitter. Uh, So good night, everyone. And thank you very much. You all. Thanks for having us. The Anesthesia Podcast.